Hello and welcome to Revolution 22's Sermon Podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today as we continue to learn from God's Word in the first epistle of Paul to the church in Corinth. We pray that God's Word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, you can slip your hands up. The ushers will bring one for you. We started a couple weeks ago, two weeks ago actually, Dr. Voorhees from Boise Bible College gave us kind of an overview of Corinth in the area. We started the book of 1 Corinthians. Today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the author inspired by the Holy Spirit, Apostle Paul himself. And the reason why we take both a little bit of time to talk about the church and the, the atmosphere and that that space, and then also the author that was in place, is that it helps us understand sometimes the way that the Lord intended us to be defined. See, God has always worked through people to create inspired works. The Bible was not written by people on their own. It was instead the Holy Spirit used the intellect and literacy of people whom he chose to write the word. Human circumstances can bring an understanding to the different things. As uh, the Apostle Paul, the whole book of 1 Corinthians, a lot of it are questions that were brought by the Corinth church to the Apostle Paul. And so he is speaking out of some of his understanding what the Lord's doing, and then the Lord retains through the Holy Spirit this information for us. John 14 teaches us that the Spirit is who teaches us the truth of Scripture, but it often is through seeking to understand what the author of a letter or book has in mind, that we find the plain, literal meaning of the text and what the Holy Spirit intends for us to know through what the inspired author meant in writing. So it's very valuable for us to understand both the author when we can and then the the context of what's going on there. That being said, the book of 1 Corinthians is, is incredibly timely and, and, and without time at the same time. I think everything that the church was wrestling with there, are, you'll see as we get into it, are things that we still wrestle with today, are things that maybe we even wrestle with more than them. And so what I wanted to do is, is talk a little bit about, about the Apostle Paul today, and then we'll get into it verse by verse uh, next week. But if you think about it, the Apostle Paul, if you spent any time in the church, even the kids in here that are in here today, uh, they, you've all heard of the Apostle Paul. Most of us, we see him, we, we kind of hold him at this high standard of who he is because, I mean, let's, let's face it, he wrote 70% of the New Testament. I mean, the guy seems untouchable. He was shipwrecked three times. On the third time, he was bitten by a snake. He was imprisoned multiple times, beaten and left for dead multiple times, and yet this guy just continued to go forward. In some ways, I feel like if I was the Apostle Paul and that was going on, I'd be kind of like, come on, God, like, I'm doing your work here, right? But he just keeps going. In fact, people say, we'll kill you, and he's like, to die is gain. Okay, we'll let you live. And he's like, to live is Christ. And they're like, okay, we're going to beat you. And he's like, my present sufferings are nothing compared to the future glory of hope. Right? It just goes on and on and on. And they're like, fine, we'll imprison you. He's like, great. I'm going to sing some hymnals, convert the guards, and anyone in here, and we'll baptize them while we're in here. In fact, give me a pen and paper. I got about 70% of the, of the New Testament inspired by God to write. Like, this is the Paul that we all know. Like, he is just unbelievable. This man has done so many different things in his life. And we don't really get an understanding of who he is in the scriptures necessarily until he shows up at about Acts 7. But what we know from history is that Paul is, was born Saul of Tarsus, or Tarsus is modern-day Turkey. So, so Saul was born into, um, into this modern-day Turkey area. His, his name is, Saul was his Hebrew given name. Paul was his Hellenistic or, or Greek name. And he, he had chose to be aligned by Paul, most scholars agree, and the reason why he would introduce himself as Paul in all the New Testament was because of the very mission that Jesus interrupts his, him on the road to Damascus with, which is that Paul was meant to go to the Jews and the, or to the Gentiles and the kings and the, and, and the people out there to preach the gospel of Jesus. And so he goes by Paul to relate more 
to them. He was, a ben- he was of Benjamite lineage and Hebrew ancestry. His parents were Pharisees, so they were very, very smart and, and, and well understanding of the, the, the law and the prophets and the Psalms. He was, he, was, he was born into this brilliant family. At age 13, he's sent off to, uh, to one of the most well-known rabbis of this time. His name is Gamaliel. And he was born at the same time about as Jesus. So when we're reading the Gospels and the story of Jesus, Paul, or Saul at that time, is being raised and going. He goes to Gamaliel at 13, spends five years there learning and perfecting about three or four things, the Torah, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he's also learning how to debate, how to, how to, how to defend so well that at an early age, Paul is a shoe-in for the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was essentially the Jewish Supreme Court, 71, of, uh, uh, 71 individuals that upheld the laws of Jews and, the, and, and then the religious understanding of this. And that's, that's who Paul or Saul is. He's brilliant, well-educated, well-spoken. He's a Roman citizen. He also has um, a bunch of time within the Jewish heritage. And so he's kind of this, this person that's uniquely wired to be brilliant. I mean, you, you run into this guy and he would be able to talk you out of anything when it came to scriptures, he could defend it clearly. He had it memorized. Like, this guy was brilliant. Saul was a brilliant, brilliant man. But the very first time that we see Saul show up is actually in Acts 7. And most of us probably don't think about this. So if you want, I'm just going to gonna kind of talk about this section. It's 750 through the beginning of 885. Essentially what's happening is this is about two years after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Scholars would say that this is kind of the second boiling point of the religious animosity towards Christianity in, in this time. So about two years, Jesus has, has been crucified. Two years, the, the disciples are in Jerusalem, and they're continuing to preach these things. And one of the disciples, Stephen, is preaching the gospel. And he gets kind of in a moment of debate with some religious leaders, and he calls them out. He says, hey, you guys don't understand. You missed this. You crucified this. He says the same thing that Peter said two years earlier. Everyone's like, oh, amazing, right? Like he, he's reiterating this thing. And so the crowd gets a little frustrated and violent. So what they do is they do the very same thing that they did in Jesus's day. They pull a court together and they basically abort all of their rules and how they operate the court. And they, they find Stephen guilty. And then they start rushing him. And then Stephen, in the middle of this, he says, he says, I have seen the heavens opened up and at the right hand of God is the son of man. And that's like, that's it. That's done. They push him outside of Stephen's gate. It's called Stephen's gate to this day. If you're in Jerusalem, it's on the east side of Jerusalem still there. And they push him out of the gate, out of the city, because they couldn't do this inside the city. This would have made everyone unclean. And they take him outside to stone him, to kill him. And this is where our Saul shows up. You ready? 7 verses um, 55. He says, okay, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This is our Saul. This is the Paul, the Apostle Paul that we know. This is the first time we see him in the scriptures. The people that are killing a a disciple of Jesus, that's that's speaking of Jesus Christ, are laying their coats at the feet of Saul, which to us seems like, okay, that's that doesn't seem like it means much, but, but to stand there and to have the garments laid there is, is, is to stand in approval. And let me just go a little bit further to prove that point. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he said, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. 
And Saul approved of his execution. We get a chapter break, but really that's just one simple thing. Approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul, listen to this, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Now, just, just to be clear, Prison is never good, but the way we understand our prison system to the way they understand their prison system is a drastic difference. Most of them would have been dropped into a cistern of all rocks. There would have been water in it in some sense, no food or water given. Being put in prison in this day was an absolutely horrible thing. And Paul, or Saul, is dragging people from their homes that are, that are following Jesus Christ. He's, he's literally pulling them from their homes and putting them in this, and it scatters. Just in case you're wondering if he was actually really, really understanding what he was doing at this moment, Saul himself in Acts 20 says this. Don't turn there. I'll just read it to you. He says this in Acts 20, verse 22. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So not only does, does Dr. Luke here in Acts tell us what Paul or Saul does, Saul himself says that I approved of this. I stood and watched it happen. And then I got active to mitigate Christianity as a whole, the, the way, the following of Jesus Christ. I wanted to, to do away with it as an entirety. This is our Apostle Paul. This is the man that we're like, man, he's, he's so smart and he's written all the New Testament. What happens? What, what changes, Saul? Most of you have heard maybe that on the road to Damascus, right? Like something happens, we'll go there right now. But, but, but don't lose sight of the fact of who this person was apart from Jesus Christ. Saul was doing horrible things. People were being killed and beaten and left for dead. Businesses, if you were a Christian business person, you had no business. It was done. You were bankrupt. Like it, was, it, it was a horrible boiling point. Well, about two years later, Saul has all but eradicated the way, the following of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem. Him, him and a, a band of people have all but eradicated. They've, they've removed all of it. It's gone. And he goes to the, the high priest in Jerusalem asking permission to say, hey, we've done such a good job here that the way has scattered into Judea and Samaria and some of those other places. Can I go there and do that? Can you give me a letter to go into the synagogues and all these other places to do the very thing? So that's what we're going to pick up in 9.1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the, of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's the way of Jesus Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so he has permission from the high priest, which is the authority to all religion in the Jewish synagogues. He has permission from this individual to go and bind anyone that is preaching Jesus Christ. Paul is on a, Saul is on a mission to eradicate followers of Jesus Christ. He is, he is out to do this. Um, I wrote it in my notes this way, but there is nothing more scary than a religious zealot. Even look at it today. Anyone that believes they're doing God's work by killing innocent people is, is the scariest of scary. And that's who Saul is. Saul believes he is commissioned by God. He has the understanding of God. He has the education of God. And he's doing the right thing for God by destroying these other people. And that's what Paul, that's what Saul thinks he's doing, is right. So then, now, as he went on his way, so he's on this road, it's a, it's a couple hundred mile journey, he's, he's on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul says, who are you, Lord? 
And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing this voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. Okay, so, so here's the scenario. So, so Saul's walking, and Jesus shows up. And the, the, the people that are with him were like his comrades. They were the people that were going in, and, and they were the muscle of the group, right? These are the people that know full well that they are the ones that are going in to take these people that are of the way and are going to take them and imprison them and beat them and do these things. They don't see the light. They don't see anything, but they hear Jesus speak. Just let that sit on you for a second here. Could you imagine what that would be like? Literally, a voice from heaven opens up. You don't see anything, and all you hear, and you hear him identify himself, I am Jesus. Now, just so you know, this is the only time in the scriptures that Jesus verbally speaks to someone. We see God do it. We know the Holy Spirit speaks to us through Jesus, through Jesus in that way, but like, this is the only time in the New Testament that we see Jesus speaking directly to someone. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, now go into the city and do what you're told. Now, I, I, don't, I wish we had more from even the people that were with him, like some kind of journal or something, like, I don't know what happened. I bet they were kind of a little frustrated with Saul because it's like, dude, your eyes are open. If you want me to carry your bag, just tell me. Like, you don't have to pretend to be blind, right? I don't know what's going on there, right? But they make their way into Damascus. And, and then it says, Saul, he says, he, and he never, for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, this is conjecture. Kids, what that means is this is my thoughts of what's being in the Bible. This is not written. I think during these three days, Saul is going back to his 101 classes. I think for these three days, he's going, man, wait a sec. He's starting to replay everything that he studied under the, under the Rabbi Gamaliel. He's starting to rethink everything that he knows of the prophets, the books he's memorized, and the Psalms, because he's like, man, have I missed it? Like, Jesus just spoke to me from heaven. He was the one that was dead and crucified and then was raised three days later. Did I miss it? And I think he starts looking, okay, now what did, the, what did the, this prophet say? And how does, how does Hosea speak of this? And how does, how, I thought he started look, literally working through all of his understanding in that time. That's just my thought. But anyways, then he says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord says to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, Ananias does what I think any one of us would have done in that situation. Well, besides the fact of like being really responsible, like, here I am, Lord. That was awesome. Do that if you hear the Lord speak to you, okay? But the thing he does, he says, okay, now go. Ananias does what all of us would have done in that situation. Saul of Tarsus, I know this man. I know this name. And he tries to remind God of what he may have missed, okay? He goes on. He goes, he goes but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard, of, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. He's saying, Lord, I've heard of this man. I have brothers and sisters that have been killed because of this man. There are people, that I, family that I had to leave, flee from because of what was happening in Jerusalem, because of this man. Do you not know who this man is? Like you ask God that question, right? He's, are you kidding me? And God does something brilliant. He answers him by not even engaging in that conversation. The very first word out of his mouth, go, okay? He goes, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Now hear that. Hear that now. Now think about the wrestling you'd have in your heart if you're Ananias. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to bring the good news to the 
Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Whoa, 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 wait, what? Chosen instrument? I still feel like if I was Ananias, I'd be a little bit hesitant. I'd still be sitting there going, okay, God, I don't want to argue with here, but it's Saul of Tarsus. We all know what Saul of Tarsus is capable of. And then I think this next sentence, verse 16, is just for Ananias, okay? For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And Ananias is like, oh, okay, he's going to suffer, I'm in. Like, right, he gets up and leaves, right? I feel like I was just for Ananias, right? But ultimately, God's saying, no, I have a purpose for this man that is far beyond your understanding, Ananias. I have a work for him that you see too small as because you see what he's capable of in his past, but you don't know what he's capable with me. You believe that he's only what he did in his past and not what I can do with his future, which so many of us believe that lie. We believe the lie that the things we struggle with in the past will be things that we always struggle with and the Lord can have no victory in. And Ananias gets up and goes. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on, his, on him said, now, now just picture this moment for me with me for a second. He's face to face with the man who has been killing and imprisoning friends, family, brothers, sisters. He's face to face with him and the guy can't even see. Like, I, I, again, I'm, not, I'm probably not as, as smart or holy as Ananias, but I feel like I'd kind of be looking for a weapon. Like, hey, he can't see. I can end this right now. But you know what he does? He does what I hope all of us would do when we hear from the Lord. He engages. He says, Brother Paul or Brother Saul. That's an endearing term. That's a, that's a, that's a hey, I'm not here as an enemy. That's a peer-to-peer term. Brother Saul. Think how hard those words must have been to come out of Ananias' mouth. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. I like to think Ananias baptized him and held him under for a long time. You know, it's like, you're gonna, like, right? That's just me, that's just me. Anyways, but he, he was strengthened. And then it says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed to Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them abound before the chief priests? But Saul increased in more strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is the conversion that happens. This is our author. This is the amazing Apostle Paul. It happens on the road to Damascus. And so many of us think at this moment, it's like, okay, so then Saul became Paul and he went like crazy. He doesn't. Scholars believe that nine to 13 years pass of him sitting in Damascus. From this point, nine to 13 years. It's not until a man named Barnabas reaches out to him. Barnabas was just a few hundred miles from here in Antioch, the first mega church, okay? And this is a mega church. This is a large area, large amount of followers in this church. And Barnabas is one of three that are kind of heading this up and leading it there. And Barnabas is pastoring people that are in Antioch and displaced because of what Saul of Tarsus did in Jerusalem. And Barnabas catches wind of this man, Saul of Tarsus, and hears about his conversion, and he puts his arm around him. And he says, Saul, come with me. Come with me to Antioch. I want you to do some work up here. And so Barnabas takes him to Antioch and the, the, the leaders see what God had shown Ananias and Saul all those years earlier. They say, this man is supposed to be out preaching the good news to the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. We need to send him. And so two years in, the leaders of this church in Antioch recognize that they need to send Barnabas and, and, and Paul. And so they send him out on his missionary journey, which you can follow most of it through the rest of Acts. See, and I think, I think many of us need that Barnabas in our life. 
We need that person that will say, you know what, I, I know what you did, and I don't like it, but I'm going to go ahead and put my arm around you, and I'm going to show you that the love of God can do anything in anyone's heart, and I'm going to walk with you through this. And I feel like Barnabas, by putting his arm around Paul, invigorated Paul to recognize it. Maybe he, again, this, we, don't, we don't have any of this, but maybe, maybe Paul was wrestling with his past. Every place he went to, the first thing people would say is, that was the man, Saul of Tarsus. Yeah, he's preaching Christ now, but that's what he did. And so very few would hear him say, I'm just, this is again my own thoughts, hear him talk about Jesus Christ without looking at him through the lens of, he's Saul of Tarsus. He's killed many people for, his, for Jesus that had Jesus' name. I think it took Barnabas, a lead pastor of a, of a mega church, so to say, in, the, in Antioch, and to say, I'm going to put my arm around you, and I believe in you. Let's do this. And then all of the leaders around Barnabas, and they, they go, he's got to go. God is, has created for him a work. And that's where we get the Apostle Paul. So what, is, what does this mean for us? This is like, there's kind of one of three things that I feel like, uh, about a few things that we can take from this. First off is, is that I think many of us forget just how big God's grace is. Saul has no business. If I, can, if I can equate what Saul was in that day to someone today, that'd be like the head leader of ISIS in one of these areas coming to Christ. That's the drastic transformation that's happening here. It would be a radical change. And that, that is something that many Christians, if not on Facebook alone, will say, crucify him. Get our vengeance. As if God doesn't say vengeance is mine. I think many of us forget that grace has no walls. Grace has no boundaries. There isn't a single person, despite how horrific their sinful past is, that grace can't cover. There isn't a single person you know, no matter how hostile, how gross, and how wrong the things they did, that grace couldn't cover it. And if we forget that, we lose sight of just how beautiful and big and profound grace is. Many of us, many of us have lost sight of that. And instead of extending grace, we want to hold someone up and, and feel like we're the judge of them. Instead of, instead of letting grace be lavish like the scriptures say, we want to go ahead and keep poking on someone instead of really giving them the true love and grace that the Lord extends to them. Instead of engaging with someone as a transformed person of Jesus Christ, they're always the transformed person of Jesus Christ that used to do this. You think Saul ever get tired of hearing that? He's like, I don't want to be known for that. In fact, he, he says himself, he's like, I'm the greatest there was in all of its dung compared to the glory of Jesus Christ. He wants to throw off everything that he knew of himself in the past that was known of him. Grace has no limits. So the instant you find yourself stewing with anger, now look, I get it. We can be angry at the injustice in this world, but the instant you start letting yourself stew there and not letting yourself pray for that individual to come to know the grace of Jesus Christ, you've lost sight of grace. No one's too far gone, which brings me to the second point in this. How many people in your life, how many people in your life do you believe are too far gone? Family members, friends, coworkers, old high school buddies that you've just stopped altogether praying for because you're like, there is no way that person could ever come to know Jesus Christ and do any good for his kingdom. You know, one of the most offensive things that I used to say all the time is like, oh man, if that person would just come to know Jesus, they'd be such a force for Jesus Christ's purposes as if anyone wouldn't be, right? Like, everyone is an instrument chosen by God to be used for his glory. And there are brothers and sisters out there that we don't have as brothers and sisters yet that are still enslaved to sin and death, that need the hope of Jesus Christ. And we, because we lost or got small or nearsighted on grace, have stopped praying for them, have stopped pursuing them have stopped believing that something amazing can happen. Could you just imagine 
if Ananias, and that didn't, it didn't happen, but Ananias is like, no, I'm not doing it, God. You're going to have to find someone else. I mean, God purposes would have probably happened either way, so don't read into that theology too far. But instead, you know what Ananias got to be? He got to be a tool used by God to bring Saul of Tarsus to the Apostle Paul. I don't, I don't know about you. Like, again, Ananias can't take any credit for it because he just did what God asked him. But I feel like it would be a really cool testimony for Ananias. No, no, he's our brother. I heard from Jesus. I laid hands on him, and he can see. Not just, vis- not just physically see, but he can see. And the last thing I think that's important for us to, to recognize is that I think a lot of people, when it comes to, and kids, kids, especially the kids that are in here, pay attention to this. I think a lot of us assume that when we come to know Jesus Christ, that, that everything has to change. And, and, and on one hand, yes, everything does change. But on the other hand, things don't really change. Like if you're a plumber and you come to know Christ, you're still a plumber. You just get a plum now for Jesus Christ. It's an interesting profession to think, but you get it, right? Okay. It's valuable. Okay. It's valuable. That doesn't change. But you know what? Look at, look at Saul of Tarsus. He was the most zealous, crazy, sold-out person for God prior to Jesus Christ. Not much really changed after Jesus Christ. He just got reoriented. Instead of imprisoning people, he was getting imprisoned. And instead of beating people, he was getting beaten, right? But like, like nothing really changed. He didn't become more zealous all of a sudden. He, he had the same zeal and the excitement and the joy to, to serve God. He just realized that he had been missing it. He only had a portion of the picture prior he missed the whole aspect of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And when he, when he understood that, he went just as hot, just as heavy-handed, just as hard in that way to serve Jesus Christ. And just become something new. Now, some of you, that means that you will change professions and things will change. But I, but I think the one thing that I can say with a guarantee is that it changes how you interact. If you're one of those people that's like, yeah, I started following Jesus when I was 13 and I mean, it happened, and you haven't really seen any life transformation you don't look back at your life and go, well, I wasn't really that bad. I mean, I wasn't that bad. I mean, if you think that you weren't that bad, then you got an issue with grace. Because it wasn't that you were bad, it was that you were dead. You weren't sick, you were dead before Christ. And when we submit our life to Jesus Christ, when we give our heart to him, when we give our life to him, it doesn't just alter us, it changes us. And so those of you in the room, they're like, man, I have not seen any life transformation since I proclaimed Jesus Christ's name then maybe you've missed it. Yeah, it was just the same this way. If the people around you can't see any difference in you at all, not for your glory, but for his, if they can't see anything happening different, then maybe you've missed it. And look, here's, here's, here's the beautiful part. Most of us should see the person that we were in before Christ and the person we are today, and every year we should look more and more like Christ and less and less like that person. So it may not be a 100% swing like Saul right away but it will be a 100% swing at some point because he promises to finish what he began in us and he will perfect it. He will complete us. So, so for those of you that are here today that are maybe like, man, I, I follow Jesus, but I'm not really seeing much of effect on my life and my finances and my household and my relationships and the way I interact and what I do at school or what I do at work, like you, I, think, I think you're missing the point of following Jesus Christ because it, everything in our life goes through that lens, not everything else coming into it. We don't add Jesus to our lives we surrender our lives to Jesus, and he adds himself into everything of our life. We don't get to just kind of alter some things. We become a new creation. And so would you, would you recognize that when you experience Jesus Christ, when you experience the grace that so lavished on us is more than enough, that it's sufficient for us, when you experience that grace, it truly changes you. It truly, truly changes you, and not just a difference like that's neat, but a change that is glorifying to him. 
the band's going to come up and we're going to continue to sing to worship. And I would encourage you to do, as we worship, I would encourage you to, to worship as a changed person. Maybe some of you, as we, as we started talking about that, as we started working through the, uh, who the person is that you can't pray for, maybe some of you need to pray for that person right now. And I understand for some of you that may, that may be really difficult because someone could have drastically wronged you. But, but if you don't get your heart in a spot where you can pray for that person, then you're going to give the enemy a foothold by bitterness. And bitterness defiles a whole community like we talked about in Hebrews. And so, so I would encourage you to find yourself to start praying for people that you believe don't deserve grace. Because could you imagine what would happen if there were more Saul Paul moments for all the ugly people in this world? Could you imagine what that would do if all of a sudden the entire group of ISIS all of a sudden surrendered to Jesus Christ? What, we just think, oh, it just can't happen, right? That's limiting God. Don't let us limit God. Ask in boldness and faith. Believe that God continue to work. God, I just praise you. I praise you for, I praise you for redeeming me as someone that is just uh, not worthy of your grace, but so grateful for it. God, for the individuals in this room that have surrendered their lives to you, that have said, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior of my life. They have given themselves to you. God, would you um, continue to remind them that they are a new creation in you and that you have, you have, before they even came out of their mother's womb, you created good works for them and that you have work for them. And if they're breathing, you're still doing work. And so, God, I thank you for that. For the individuals that are here today that maybe haven't fully surrendered themselves to you, they, they believe there's some kind of half way to do it or, or they're afraid to give themselves entirely to you because of what it might do in their life, God, would you, just, um, would you just wreak havoc with their hearts? Would you just draw them in? Even the individuals that are here today that maybe are like, man, I'm just kind of checking this out. I don't believe it's an accident that's here. Maybe it's not a road to Damascus, but it brought, you brought them here for a reason. And so would you, would you penetrate their hearts? Would you soften them? Would you, would you free them from the sin and bondage that they're in? God, for those of us that have been following you for a long time that maybe are, are muddied, our, our, our life has been muddied by this culture around us and there isn't actually much of you shining through, God, would you chip away the things that aren't connected to you? Would you cut away any vine that does not, is not connected to you? Would, you? would you continue to sanctify us, make us more and more like your son Jesus so that all people see is Jesus, not ourselves? And God, would we be reminded today that people aren't their past, they're, they're you. Our identity isn't what we did do or what we're going to do. Our identity is in Christ alone. And so, God, I pray that we would be identified in that way. I pray that as we dig into the book of 1 Corinthians, God, that you'd be glorified in this, that this wouldn't be us just learning knowledge to be puffed up, but instead would be transformation in our lives for your glory to bring more and more of your kingdom here as it is in heaven. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.